Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. The president shows California the money, and the governor punches back on the recall. It's our weekly politics roundtable state of affairs. Plus, are you tired of wearing sweatpants all day and all night? In the red tier, you may be able to put on fancy clothes and actually go out for the evening. We'll hear from Largo at the Coronet about when they might be open for some nightlife. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for ending the week with us. we got a lot to pack in, so let's get started with State of Affairs. That's our weekly peek at politics in the Golden State. Now, the Biden administration is showing California the money. We're going to break down how much and where it may be spent. But before that gets doled out, next Wednesday is the deadline for signatures in the effort to recall Gavin Newsom. Now, a little under 1.5 million verifiable signatures are needed. And Recall Gavin 2020 campaign senior advisor Randy Economy, that's his real name, Randy Economy, says that they have over. 2 million. We're going to get into all this with Zach Corser, co-director of Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Welcome back, Zach. Happy Friday. Also with us, I'm Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED, who just got off the phone with Gavin Newsom. Uh, Marisa, welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, now, uh, Zach, before we get to Marisa and, and what uh, she spoke about uh, with Gavin Newsom, remind us what happens if all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed on a recall effort. Well, you know, it's been almost... 20 years ago now, but it, it's a pretty strange process. The ballot, when it's actually put before voters, is going to ask two questions at the same time. It's going to ask first, do you want to recall the governor? And then immediately thereafter, it's going to ask who you want to replace the governor with. So you've got some strange things where, you know, you can vote not to replace and still choose a replacement. Uh, there's also the problem, if you want to see it as that, as it being fairly easy to get on the ballot if you want to replace the governor. Uh, back in 2003, there were 135 candidates who ran because the qualification level is pretty low. The other thing that sort of uh, creates a, a weird strategic problem is you only need a plurality of votes to win. If, if people vote to recall Newsom, you know, amongst however many candidates qualify, whoever wins just needs a plurality. They, there's no runoff, you don't need to get a majority. So, you know, depending on how this vote could split apart, you know, with several Republicans running, maybe some Democrats deciding that they want to put their hat in the ring just in case, uh, you could get some some a really divided vote and you could actually get a candidate that only represents, you know, a small portion of, of the California electorate, but could yet become governor. Now, while Gavin Newsom has not mentioned the R word in public, I, I haven't heard him say recall not once. He certainly seems to be doing and saying things to aggressively punch back at this uh, sort of political Voldemort. Uh, Marisa, you just spoke to Gavin Newsom. Did you ask him about the recall? Did he acknowledge that uh, that one uh, might be uh, looming? So he did. Um, I... <laughs> 
you know, I told him I knew he didn't want to talk about it. But uh, as a reporter, you're like always trying to think of how can you get, you know, phrase a question in the way they might actually answer it. So I basically asked him what he thinks this is all about. Um, I had just asked him before that about what mistakes he made. And um, he talked about, you know, sort of hindsight being 2020 around some of the tiering efforts and, and some of the, you know, real more serious decisions he made and acknowledged once again that dinner at French Laundry that was probably not a good thing. Um, but he says, look, this is an effort that predated that dinner or some of these other challenges that we're seeing that people had been out collecting signatures and that, you know, they want to challenge his policy agenda, his progressive policy agenda, the way he phrases it around immigration and education and, and a host of other issues. So, um, you know, I think what we're seeing here with both him and then also a lot of the folks from Senator Bernie Sanders all the way down to state lawmakers, really Democrats are trying to rally around Newsom to show even in advance of this qualifying that they feel like this is a Republican attack. It's a national sort of strategy that this has ties to the Trump administration and others um, and that they are going to stay unified in the face of this. And I think Newsom is trying to stay on message as much as he can. And I guess, you know, if, if I was watching that conversation you had with him, I'd be looking for his tone. How did he answer? I mean, did he sound annoyed being asked about the recall? Was he aggressive in, in kind of punching back on it? How, how would you say his tone was? Well, just broadly today, he felt it felt very relaxed. Um, I mean, I've known Newsom for a very long time, so we do have a rapport going back to when he was mayor. But he he certainly f- seemed more um, at ease than I've seen him in much of his public events lately. Um, and I think it, it felt like he was kind of ready to start. Um, I don't know, just talking about some of this stuff. I mean, he still rattles off, you know, his favorite keywords and, and all his data, but but it did feel like a more relaxed Newsom than I've seen recently. Zach, you know, a lot can happen between now and when voters might have to decide on this. But if the recall election was tomorrow, what's Gavin Newsom's best argument to keep his job? Yeah, I think it's the one he's really starting to make as he's seeing the fact that this recall is likely going to happen. You know, I think he's going to be talking about performance because I think that's really what he's going to be judged on. Ideology, I don't think, is going to be a big part of this. I think that was sort of expressed in the recall campaign, you know, disgruntled, unhappy uh, Republicans, uh, you know, I think are largely behind that drive for the most part. So I think he's going to do his best to paint as rosy a picture as possible that he helped to help California weather the storm, you know, that California did better than other large states in dealing with COVID. Um, that he's working really hard to uh, make sure vaccinations get out rapidly. And I think also he's going to start taking some credit for reopening California schools shortly. I think those are going to be the, the big talking points, and it's going to be all about performance. Marisa, typically when an elected official agrees to speak to a journalist, they have something they want to say. Uh, what did he want to talk about? I think that this is kind of his... Um I don't want to call it a victory lap, but, you know, my sense is that they are coming off of the state of the state where he's really trying to frame the future of California, the end inside of this pandemic. I got the sense that also on the heels of the one point nine trillion dollar rescue plan, which, of course, is going to put a lot of money both directly in Californians pockets and in state coffers, um, that he's really trying to kind of take the message on the road, so to speak, that he tried to deliver on on Tuesday night, which was one of optimism and hope and, and acknowledgement of the pain that the state has seen, but but really trying to look forward and um, push this narrative that California is on its way back. You know, there's a public policy Institute of California chart tracking his approval number since uh, Gavin Newsom was sworn in, and that was January of 2019. Um, that's 
43% approved at that time, 29% disapproved. The smallest gap in the time since was when wildfires were all over California. Uh, that was September 2019. The largest gap was in May of 2020. That was two months after the uh, March 19th stay-at-home orders. Um, Zach, what do these kinds of trends, you think, say to you about the kinds of things that make Californians feel how they feel about the governor? Well, I mean, it appears that, you know, Californians are very results oriented in how they assess the governor's performance. It also appears, too, that, you know, if you want to think about what Newsom's floor is, that is to say, you know, what's his kind of minimum, it it seems pretty low, like down in the 40s, you know, and with enough bad news in the headlines, I think it's enough of a headwind that he's got to be concerned about this recall effort. I mean, like you say, it's still early days. There's a lot that could happen between now and say a November recall effort, but there's a lot of volatility here. I mean, you know, I think I'm sure he's looking back at, you know, Gray Davis and, you know, Gray Davis was at 40% approval rating when he was reelected in in 2002. And Californians were real upset about, you know, the car tax, electricity crisis at the time. And, you know, if these events continue, like, let's say, for example, California's economy doesn't take off or that there are a lot of hiccups to the vaccine or that schools are not opened in a way that people agree with, I think all of that criticism is going to land directly at Newsom's door. There's a piece I read this week uh, in the Sacramento Bee. It's titled, uh, Is Gavin Newsom an Out-of-Touch Elite? Why Recall Supporters Can't Stand Him. Some of the words used to describe Newsom in the piece, narcissist, tyrant, idiot, jerk, drunk with power. Uh, Newsom's fourth generation San Francisco, Marisa Lagos, you're the most no-cal person we have in the room right now. So based on what you know of Gavin Newsom, how much of these feelings you think are based on preconceptions versus performance? You know, I think that the people you see quoted in stories like that, it, largely, I mean, I think there are some people who have kind of fallen off the Newsom bandwagon, maybe because of some of the COVID stuff. But these are people that voted against him largely uh, when he first ran that never liked Newsom. I mean, you know, when we look at the polling, you see that even with those kind of sky high numbers, he had approval ratings at the beginning and, and in parts during the pandemic they were still very much based on party split, right? So I think a lot of the people, you know, much like I think you could argue a lot of the critics of President Trump were were Democrats who had already, you know, you could sort of swap out some of that language for the way Californians talk about Trump Democrats to Californians. So, you know, I think that's going to be the question in this recall if it does qualify is, are those independent voters, say, you know, persuadable to either side? Are are the Democratic base abandoning Newsom? And if the answer to that second question is no, it's going to be a lot harder to convince uh, the state to recall the governor. One more thing on this recall, possibly. So far, two Republicans have said they challenged Newsom either in the recall election or in 2022. That's John Cox and Kevin Faulkner. Uh, Zach, considering that even in a, in a recall, it seems like a long shot to beat Gavin Newsom, especially the way... California is now, would it be a wiser move for one of them to sit it out and wait for 2022? Well, I don't think so. Because as I was saying earlier, you only need a plurality to win. If if Newsom is actually recalled, that threshold is so much lower for them. uh, And, you know, regardless of the outcome, they'll be set up pretty well for 2022 because they will have had a chance to go out there and campaign. So I think it's, you know, worthwhile for them to try to carve out, say, a big enough plurality to where they could have, you know, a fighting chance of, of winning in a recall. 
Can I just say one yeah, thing? I was talking to a Republican yesterday who did mention that, you know, they thought that this was in some ways a double edged sword for like a Kevin Faulkner. He probably would have preferred to face Newsom in a head to head primary or, you know, maybe not head to head since we don't have that. But, yeah. you know, that that this is, you know, this, what Zach laid out at the front. There was one hundred and thirty five candidates in recall. I mean, this could kind of drag him into the mud in a way and, and make it even harder. But it is a fundraising and organizational opportunity. So I think it's really really hard to tell yet how that's going to play out for the individual Republicans challenging him. Yeah, I guess you take your shot when the shot's there, right? Even if it's yeah, not in an ideal to. situation. Yeah. We're talking to Zach Corso of Claremont McKenna College and Marisa Lagos from KQED. Now, uh, moving on now to President Biden signing that uh, $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. And all of the 50 states are like hungry baby birds in a nest chirping to be fed. Uh, Marisa, how much is heading California's way? Um, we are expected to get, uh, oh shoot, I had the number in front of me a second ago. Uh, a lot of 150, <laughs> lot of I think 150 mi- billion, right? Yeah. That's, yes, that's what I was going to say, but that sounded high. So $150 billion. Now, a lot of that is going to go directly to Californians, right? This is money, these $1,400 stimulus checks. I think even more importantly, this child tax credit that could put up to $300 in families' pockets per month ongoing. Um, and then there's obviously a lot of money for state and local governments. Um, to help both pay for all the things that we've had to pay for over the past year to, to deal with the pandemic and also try to kind of backfill um, some of the expected property tax declines and other, you know, other other um, monetary declines in state coffers. So this is a big chunk of change for California. And um, it certainly, I'm sure, didn't hurt that we have the Speaker of the House from San Francisco and the Vice President uh, from California as well. That child tax credit, uh, Zach, that Marisa just mentioned, I mean, that, that could make a huge dent in the child poverty rate. I would imagine that that's that's the intent, right? That is the intent. I think um, there's hopes even that this could cut, you know, California is very high. I mean, if you judge California on the basis of cost of living, we have the highest uh, poverty rates in the country. And this could potentially cut child poverty in half. And I think a lot of uh, economists and observers are hoping that with this year, we could actually prove that, you know, these direct payments in the way that we're doing it in the, in the bill uh, actually could prove to be a very positive, useful strategy moving forward. So not only will we see some immediate effects, but it might actually provide some evidence for, for doing more of this in the future. And Zach, the $26 billion windfall for the state uh, to spend really on anything the state wants to, what do you think would be something that, uh, that Gavin Newsom might want to put some of that money toward? That's well, a good question. I mean, he's. We remember we we already had our fifteen billion dollar windfall just yeah. here in California, and a lot of that's already spent. And so, you know, I think schools are and higher education. I think will will be asking for money and support. But I think largely, one thing that he has to focus on, and it'll be interesting to see how he could leverage this money, is you know reopening California's economy. You know, uh, say you know support to small business, support to bring business into California, support to sort of get the the engine of California's economy moving again. I think that's going to be a priority for Newsom, at least as we get closer to the recall. But, you know, it'd be interesting to see, can we make some investments now in infrastructure, in our business uh, environment that could pay dividends as the the COVID crisis ends? Now, one more thing uh, before the weekend, considering that we just found out not long ago that L.A. County on Monday is moving into the red tier. That means all kinds of things that were closed are going to open up. I saw that Alcatraz is welcoming back visitors. It's a former federal prison on an island in the San Francisco Bay. It's been closed the past year, but uh, you can go right now for tours if you 
want. Um, considering that uh, we're getting closer and closer to reopening, I'm wondering for each of you, if you could be the first ones through the doors of someplace in California, where would you go back to first? Uh, Marisa? It's safe. It's yeah, it's it's a safe. Well, I mean, I can't guarantee safety because, you know, but seriously, I mean, that's I mean, like, I'm not going to go eat in an indoor restaurant right now, even though they're open. That's just my personal like, you know, threshold. I mean, what I really want to do as a mom of two kids is get a break, honestly. So I would probably book a really nice hotel room and spa with my girlfriends in like wine country for a weekend or at the beach. Zach, really quick, you. I have a couple of Dodger tickets from last season nice. that I wasn't able to go to the game. I'd love to convert those into opening day tickets if I could. Yeah, you might have to make them 2021 tickets now. Uh, Marisa Lagos, a political correspondent for KQED, Zach Corser, co-director, Policy Lab, Claremont McKenna College. Marisa, Zach, have a great Red Tier weekend. <laughs> you, you too, guys. <laughs> Los Angeles County is officially moving into the state's less restrictive red tier this Monday. That means indoor dining, movie theaters, museums, fitness centers can reopen at limited capacity. So with that in mind, we want to hear from you. How are you feeling about going back to the gym and other indoor areas? I mean, will you immediately go right back? Are you running right right back there right now? Or do you plan maybe to wait out? a bit uh, just to make sure that everything's safe and you're feeling better. So whatever you're feeling, please let us know. Share your thoughts with us by calling in and leaving a message on our voicemail. That's 626-583-5281. Tell us if and how you'll adjust to the new rules. Leave your name, where you're from, and how we can reach you. So once again, that number is 626-583-5281. 626-583-5281. You can also find us on Twitter at Take two. We look forward to hearing from you. All right, along those same lines, schools are starting to open up all over L.A. We're going to talk to a teacher and a child psychiatrist on how to best prep kids to getting back in the classroom. That's coming up uh, in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. The Los Angeles Unified School District is finally getting ready to welcome students back into the classroom after reaching a tentative agreement with its union, United Teachers Los Angeles. Now, the deal still has to be ratified, but both sides seem optimistic about that happening as early as next week. Now, assuming all goes well, elementary schools are slated to go back April 19th. So to get a sense of what that return will be like and how students are feeling about it, we reached out again to Jennifer Troches McLean. She teaches fourth grade at Gates Street Elementary in Lincoln Heights. Uh, you know, we last talked to you, Jennifer, at the start of the school year. How's it been going? It's challenging. I, I, I've never thought I'd feel this way as a teacher, and uh, but we're still moving forward. 
at this point, I'm processing a lot of what's going on around us with things speeding up with the vaccinations and then just these the tentative agreement being reached. So I know that the end of the year, the school year is not that far away, but it's difficult because now I'm being asked along with my students and everybody else like to reimagine what it's going to be like um, if all goes in the direction that it's going and we go back to school uh, sometime in April. In a weird way, Jennifer, are the students finally getting more used to remote learning? Yeah. You know what? It's a testament to how resilient we are as people, as humans, because my my students, when I uh, look at where I was at the beginning of the school year, <laughs> I was ready to hit my head against the wall and cry mm. a lot <laughs> because it was it was very different. Now that we're over 120 days into the school year, that part is done and they, they get it. A lot of the kids are becoming very fluent and very comfortable in switching platforms, going from one app to the other, doing their work and submitting it digitally. And these are skills that I know that they would eventually learn how to do. I just never thought I'd be teaching them the way I have had to, you know, as you know, fourth grade teacher. Do you think that they're, you know, considering how long it took to to finally get kids in the flow of remote learning and now possibly kids are going to go back that it might be a bigger adjustment than than anyone might think? I've had to like really help them process this idea that school is not going to be what they know school to be. And I have to remind them that look, our classroom because I've seen it, you know, they had already started prepping our rooms um earlier this school year. And I've seen what it looks like. And I told him, you're not going to sit with a table partner. Mm. You're not going to be in pods. You're not going to be able to sit wherever you want because we have flexible sitting in my classroom. Um, and you're not going to be able to do the things that you know school to be. And I think my kids are starting and trying to process that. And and it brings up a lot of issues and feelings for them. But I'm grateful that that we've built community in our classroom, that we can talk about it and hopefully ease them in. But it will be a big adjustment, not only for them, but for us as well. Um, okay. Tentative agreement, that's on the table between the union and the district. What elements, Jennifer, of it are you happy with and what do you maybe not like so much? We have a major win on our hand because most of us voted that we did not want to go back to school until it was safe for everybody. And it's easy to make the narrative about teachers not wanting to go back to work. We have been working very hard since the first day of school and even prior to make this happen. It's more about us trying to keep our students and our families, not our personal families only, but our school community families safe. So I think about how we are asking for all teachers and staff to be vaccinated and inoculated. That's a big win because many of our colleagues have not had had that um, given to them, and they're just starting to get vaccinated as well, but have been teaching um, in their classrooms in, in different fashions. Then we also have the win of making sure that we have PPE available to us and that, that we need to be out of that purple tier. So that was a major win, and, and I'm grateful that our district also aligned with that, that there was no fighting between the two entities, despite mm-hmm what's going on outside, you know, in the pressures. When I look at the schedule, it's tough because uh, we're being asked once again in the middle of the year to kind of uproot what we've worked on and just kind of make the changes and adapt. And and I think that's going to be difficult. But if anything, um, when I look at what we had to do about a year ago 
And when we were asked to make that change and adapt, we did it. I got to ask, considering that vaccinations have been such a part of this negotiation between uh, UTLA and LAUSD, have you gotten vaccinated yet to maybe have that confidence to be in the classroom uh, completely fully confident that that you're okay? Yes, I am going to divulge personal information. Yes, I have gone and received my first jab. And um, depending on when we go back, I expect to be fully inoculated. And uh, that I know, I mean, I look at the science and maybe because of my undergrad background um, as a science major, I I have that confidence to feel like, okay, this is going to work. And we see that, right? The vaccines are being rolled out and we're seeing numbers decrease. So I don't worry so much about myself now, but I do worry about what I still may bring home. For example, my husband, who is at a, you know, at a greater risk of, you know, if he were to catch COVID, it would not be good. He's not eligible for a vaccine right now. So there is going to be an overlap. There's going to be some time there between ourselves being inoculated and vaccinated. You know, that it does give me pause, but you know, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. I double mask and maybe it's a little paranoia, but I've been double masking. I keep my distance. I've been following the guidelines that the CDC has put out and in hopes that um, I wouldn't get myself or my elderly parents or my husband or anybody else around me. Um, I'm sick. You're not paranoid, Jennifer. I don't know when I'm going to take a mask off. I'm serious. I'm wearing it until further notice. If that means next year, that means next year. That's a fourth grade teacher, Jennifer Troches McLean. She teaches at Gates Elementary in Lincoln Heights. Jennifer, as always, thank you very much. And we're going to check in with you again in a few months, okay? Sounds great. A, take care and be safe. As we heard, students are getting ready to go back into the classroom, but going to school will be a very different experience than it used to be, at least at first. Not only will the classrooms and schedules look different, young children are going to be dealing with a lot of different feelings after spending the year mostly at home and mostly with one's nuclear family. Marion Williams is a clinical psychologist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and she joins us to tell us what to expect from kids when they go back and how to best help them transition. Marion, welcome to Take Two. Thanks for having me. Now, for the littlest learners, uh, help us understand what they've experienced this past year and what we need to be mindful of as all of us go back to the the school classroom structure again. Well, I would say on the positive side, young children love to hang out with their families. So they've had lots of time with mom and dad or other family members. And so one of the things that's going to be the most challenging is learning how to separate again and and spend time with peers and with adults that they don't know very well. Um, So I think they're going to need support in kind of feeling comfortable with that, feeling that it's okay to be away from home and navigating, making new friendships. Yeah, that is going to be a part of the experience for the kids, right? Because they, they haven't seen their friends. Maybe they haven't even been anywhere near their friends physically in a long, long time. And that social dynamic that uh, we always talk about uh, how schools are helpful with to help kids uh, in their development, that's going to happen immediately. <laughs> I mean, right mm-hmm. off the bat. 
Yeah, and I think children are going to be really yearning to reconnect socially. And that's probably the most important task that they're going to have is having time to just play to connect with other people. And in fact, I'm hoping that schools can provide the time and space for that. I think there might be a lot of pressure to sort of catch up academically. Um, But as a mental health professional, I really think about catching up emotionally and socially being equally important. And in fact, uh, maybe more important, especially for young children. What about the anxiety of learning back in a classroom? Because I've talked to um, a few teachers and a few kids, my grandkids actually, who have in the last few months really have gotten the hang of remote learning. But now um, they're going to be back in a classroom setting. Any ways to try and help kids who have tried their best to transition to remote learning, done a good job finally, but then have to leave that behind and go back into a classroom? Yeah, well, I think there's going to be two kinds of anxiety. One is, you know, we've spent a year telling kids that it's not safe to be close to somebody, you know, especially someone not in their family. And now we're going to say, okay, go in this room and spend time indoors with other people. So we're going to have to kind of balance keeping them careful but conveying kind of confidence and reassurance that their teachers are going to keep them safe. And then the other anxiety is going to be around the learning environment, as you said. And I think it's going to be important for teachers and parents to remember that they're going to have a really diverse range of levels of um, academic readiness in the classroom more than ever. So there's going to be some kids who really thrived in online learning and maybe even went ahead of their grade level. And then there's going to be other kids who really learned very little in the past year and really didn't have the resources um, or the privacy or the quiet at home, you know, to be able to really learn that way. So coming back, um, I think it's going to be really important that teachers kind of find ways to individualize assignments so that nobody feels badly if they are not sort of keeping up. Um, or not comparing children to each other, but letting each child kind of find their place and begin to make progress starting from wherever they're at right now. We're talking to Marion Williams, a clinical psychologist with Children's Hospital Los Angeles. When it comes to kids' mental health needs, there's going to be some kids that are going to be going back to class after spending a year with their family, as we mentioned, but sometimes in some households, some family members have not made it through this pandemic. And that's a trauma that these kids are going to carry with them back into a classroom. Um, How do Mm -hmm. we help those kids uh, deal with those uh, mental health needs? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that I'm the most worried about is kind of the mental health of children that have been through uh, a really challenging year. And I know the families that we work with at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, there's been a lot of loss. And I think we do have kind of foundational strategies for helping children cope with trauma. Um, that will come in, you know, as really helpful during this time. And just some of those basic principles will definitely apply to the current situation. Um, And that there's things that teachers and school nurses and school counselors and social workers can really do to help. You know, one of the best ways to kind of cope with trauma is through having strong nurturing relationships. And I think those include, you know, with other children at school, with teachers. It's also really important to kind of directly acknowledge the trauma, you know, to name it, to give children space to talk about it. 
I think sometimes people, when a child is sad or distressed, you know, they want to kind of distract them. And, you know, distraction is also a great tool, but it's important to first acknowledge it, you know, and and give children a space where they can share what's happened to them and hear from others who have been in similar situations. And then to provide sort of concrete strategies for how to manage those upsetting feelings. You know, some of the things that really help kids be resilient is their capacity to play. You know, they use play not just for fun, but as a way to work through things that they're coping with. So on that, Marion, the kids that have lost a family member, is there anything specific that that we should think about to try and help them? Anything teachers and parents and, and maybe schools should do to try and help them with that? Yeah, I mean, I would really encourage schools to kind of put together almost a little task force of teachers, um, school psychologists, school social workers, school nurses to really put their heads together around you know, what are some activities that we can do as a school to kind of honor the people that have been lost? Um, It's not just kids, but it's teachers and other staff as well who have lost um, important people. So finding ways to kind of um, honor and name those losses uh, in a way that, you know, is kind of supportive. You know, Marion, assuming that uh, schools get back in the classroom sometime within the next month or so, how long do you think it's going to take before we get a good idea of how this transition is going? Well, you know, I think we're going to have to listen to the kids. You know, luckily, kids are, on the one hand, very resilient. They probably bounce back faster than adults do. And I think they're going to tell us through their uh their emotions, their play, how they're doing. And I think we'll know very quickly, you know, a lot of kids are going to really bounce back quickly. And then there's others who are going to have long lasting traumas that they're going to need help to cope with, Um, especially those who have lost close family members, or seen a lot of serious illness that's been really scary for them. Marion Williams is a clinical psychologist with Children's Hospital LA. Marion, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, if you haven't even thought about making an appointment to get vaccinated because you think you're nowhere near eligible yet, well, you might want to look again because the criteria is expanding and it could be your time to go get that shot. Find out all about it when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. Ami Martinez. 
All right. You've heard that come Monday, Los Angeles County will be in the red tier, allowing businesses such as indoor gyms to reopen. This, as a public health officials, expand the eligibility requirements for who will be able to get the vaccine. KPCC's health reporter Jackie Fortier has been tracking all of this. Uh, Jackie, more people will become eligible for the free COVID-19 vaccine on Monday, March 15th. Who are these people? Yeah, millions more Californians become eligible on Monday. So it's people from 16 to 64 with disabilities and severe health conditions. They'll be able to sign up to get the shot, as well as public transit workers, commercial airline workers, and those living and working in congregate living spaces. So uh, that includes people experiencing homelessness and people in federal immigrant detention centers. Now, that's all on top of the people who it was already open to, uh, people who qualified like health workers, educators, and people over the the age of 65. All right. Sounds cool. But will there be enough vaccine doses for everyone who qualify? No. Okay. Just because you're eligible does not mean that there is a dose ready for you, unfortunately. Uh, the demand will definitely continue to outstrip supply probably through the end of March. Uh, we do have federal agreements with pharmaceutical companies, and that means they're supposed to deliver more doses uh, in April, especially. There has been a manufacturing delay with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine everywhere in the U.S., not just here. L.A. County health officials are not expecting any more J&J uh, until April. So you may qualify, but you might have to wait. All right. Now, you said that people with certain health conditions qualify on Monday. What are those uh, health conditions? Yeah, so these are folks that have medical conditions like cancer, heart disease, pregnancy, uh, conditions that mean you're immunocompromised or you're more vulnerable to get very sick or dying if you get COVID-19. This also includes people with developmental disabilities. Well, those people, Jackie, have to prove their medical condition at the vaccine site because I know there's been uh, problems with the authenticity of paperwork being questioned. Yeah, there has been a problem. Uh, to answer your question, no, people won't have to prove that they are medically eligible. Uh, yesterday, the state public health department said it won't require those people to prove their eligibility. Instead, California is going to use the honor system, which is what some other states have done. Uh, when folks with those conditions get an appointment, they'll arrive at the vaccine site. They'll be asked to sign a statement uh, saying that they meet the criteria and that's it. They will have to bring a photo ID and proof that they live or work in the county where they're getting a shot. Now, people with disabilities who get services through regional centers should be getting a personal personalized letter from the regional center. Uh, since there have been problems in the past with people who qualify getting turned away at vaccine sites, I've reported on it. If I were them, I would bring a regional center letter with me at a vaccine site just to be safe. You can also, of course, reach out to your doctor. Some providers like Kaiser have the vaccine, and then you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, proving your eligibility or maybe not. And you don't have to get, you know, vaccinated at a big site like Dodger Stadium. Your doctor already has your health history. Okay, nice. So what about people who qualify for uh, the COVID vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine based on their jobs? Yeah. So if you qualify based on your occupation, you do need to prove your eligibility. So bring like a pay stub or a work issued ID, as well as something proving that you live and work in the county that you're getting vaccinated in. So like your driver's license. All right. Then what about after we get through those folks who will qualify next? 
Yeah, that's a big question. So health officials have said that it will likely be an age-based rollout, but we don't have any information on what those tiers would look like. And it's all, of course, really based on the supply of the vaccine. If we have more doses, they'll likely open it up to more people. I mean, the only reason that we're doing this staggered rollout is to protect the most vulnerable people because we don't have enough vaccine for everyone. Yeah. Uh, last night, President Biden seemed optimistic and said that uh, all adults in the U.S., mm-hmm. all, will qualify for the vaccine on May 1st. Do you think that's doable? Well, again, qualifying for the vaccine is not the same as everyone being vaccinated. So it will still take a few weeks and maybe months past May 1st to get the shot into every adult's arm. If we have more vaccine doses, like President Biden said, we may have, you know, more fun on the 4th of July. (laughs) But there are some potential hiccups. You know, we could have another problem with manufacturing or syringe availability. Keep in mind, everybody in the world wants this vaccine. We are all competing for the same resources. Um, Earlier this afternoon, I was just on a uh, press call with the California Department of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Galley, who's the Secretary of Health, told us that California officials were not given a heads up on the May 1st eligibility. He said he watched it last night, just like everybody else. And so he also said that the state's job is to be ready for however much vaccine the federal government and drug makers can send us. So uh, it sounds to me like they're going to look at how to ramp up vaccines when it's open to every adult. This lack of communication, Jackie, it's still it's annoying. I know that uh, we're deep into this, but it's still You're preaching annoying. to the choir. Yeah, that's uh, KPCC's Jackie 48. Jackie, thank you very much. Thanks. We've been telling you the whole show, L.A. County is right on the verge of moving into the red tier. It starts Monday, and that means that you can still keep wearing your work-from-home sweatpants, but take them to work out inside a gym, inside a yoga studio or a dance studio. But, you know, just in case, just in case you want to put on some nice clothes and go out for the evening, will L.A.'s cool hangout spots be open as well? We're going to hear from the owner of Largo at the Coronet when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and most places where you find your podcasts. I'm Ian Martinez. Performance venues across Los Angeles went dark a year ago when a statewide shelter-in-place order was issued. Now, as L.A. County moves toward the less restrictive red tier and with additional financial support coming from the federal government, we wanted to check in and find out how some of these venues have fared so far and what might come next. Mark Flanagan is the owner and manager of Largo at the Coronet Theater in Los Angeles. Now, he opened the music and comedy venue back in 1993 and told us what it was like to close its doors to the public on March 11th of last year. 
there is a real strong sense of community when you have artists that do one or two shows a month. You get to see them all the time. And, and you know, when that went away, it was just definitely this feeling of dislocation. We last checked in with Mark in May of 2020. and At that point, Largo had been closed for more than two months. So now, Mark, after a year of being in the most restrictive tier, things are easing up. I know you'll have to remain closed, but how does it feel to be in the red? You know, honestly, I was looking at it today and, you know, to see the update because they were talking about even update on who's eligible for vaccines and stuff, you know. And so I was looking at that and trying to figure out what a red tier is. So, you know, with movie houses, I think, or, or cinemas in general will be able to open at a certain capacity. So it feels like it's an attainable thing, but I, I still feel like we want to be vaccinated. But I've been fortunate the last time I talked to you, I was trying to work out a deal where we could have Conan O'Brien, who's been a great friend for many years, come and shoot his TV show that he does for TBS. Oh, at Largo. Wow. We've been doing that on and off, you know, coming in in little batches, shooting as much stuff as possible, yeah, yeah. taking time off. And he's been fantastic. And so he's been helping with the rent. Uh, I mean, it's not the full thing, but, you know, so I've been able to send my landlord some money and stuff. But the biggest difference between the last time I talked to you and now, which is it's kind of overwhelming. It's just the leadership. Like, a, you know, Trump was a total disaster in terms of any form of inspiration. And so now that there's leadership that actually is compassionate and it's science-based, that, to me, that's better than any red tears. You know, it just it feels like we're going to be taken care of a bit, you know. Now, when we spoke last year, Mark, you estimated the venue had taken a $300,000 hit. Um, how is Largo holding up right now? You know, thanks to Conan O'Brien and, and, and stuff that we're, we're doing okay, but we, we, we owe... Yeah, we owe like three to four hundred thousand dollars in rent. That would not just rent, like you know, taxes, rent. You take all this into consideration. So, I think that once we do get past the all clear, you know, the month of February we had twenty six sold out shows before we closed, and and Largo has been very much like that. Where, where you know the people that perform there, they perform there because they're trying to work out new material. There's no cameras. It won't end up on YouTube, but they can play a lot bigger venue. You know, so I feel like. Once we get back into it, we'll be re- as busy as ever, if not even more so, because people will be just so dying to get out of the house. But, you know, there is those considerations just to pay the back bills and stuff. You yeah, know? I mean, where do you pay them? I mean, if you were to get a loan, I'm wondering, I mean, there's probably an endless list of things you got to pay, and who gets their money first? Right, exactly. And, and you know, that's what you were asking me about the red tier thing. You know, even with these grants, it's kind of unclear in terms of, you know, are we supposed to pay all the rent for, you know, it could be 18 months since the day we closed. You know, or is it a percentage of that? And then the landlord um, gets his own grant from the government, you know. So hopefully that there's a combination of that there somewhere, you know. Now, you've been involved with a group called the National Independent Venue Association, an effort trying to get financial support to, quote, to preserve and nurture independent venues and promoters. Uh, Mark, the group has seen some significant success with uh, the Save Our Stages Act being signed into law. But tell us about these efforts and how it can help you and, and other businesses uh, like yours. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, I, I can't take much credit for it. I mean, we, you know, I was there definitely initially to try and form. And, and my contribution was rather than pick the four prestigious venue of each city we should include everybody that you know is even small kind of like you know little comedy venues that have 50 to 80 people that we should be all under the umbrella so luckily we were able to do that include anyone that wanted to be part of this so we reached out to you know starting with council people you know representatives of all sorts and then amy schumer who's a great comedian has performed largo her uncle is chuck schumer so it kind of galvanized and, and really took up steam but under the last administration, it looked bleak, and now, you know, it looks actually really good, you know. So it, we're still waiting to hear what that actually could be, 
you know, in terms of, but I just, I feel like it shouldn't, it should help any struggling venue. Like I don't know any other venue that actually has had a Conan O'Brien step in and help them out, you know? So I think that for those venues, they, they should really, you know, get some support. A lot of support. And, you know, you mentioned the daunting costs of rent for Largo. I mean, how are you feeling about the future of the venue and, and the many others in Los Angeles that are maybe are in your similar situation? I feel that, you know, it depends, very much depends on the landlord. Like, I have a 10-year lease, so it, it very much depends on the relationship with everybody and their landlord. Um, but unfortunately, what happens in Los Angeles and many big cities is the landlords are sitting on properties that they could probably sell at a very good price. And so breaking a lease could be of their interest. And that's why we need to protect smaller venues. And with vaccinations underway and COVID-19 cases and deaths declining, I mean, there there does feel like there is some optimism that uh, we could be returning to, to, a, to a life mark where we can go back to Largo and places just like Largo all over the city to kind of bring back the normal that we used to have or that maybe we took for granted back then. Um, how do you see Largo operating when it's finally safe to reopen and everyone can go back? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I have uh, two great children that are 12 and 14, and, and I constantly tell them that it's not going to be the same, but it could possibly be better. And what I mean by that is I think people will be nicer to each other. It could be short-term in that sense, but I think everybody will never take it for granted again that they couldn't just go on a Friday night to see John Bryan. Or, and I think that there will definitely be that sense of we made it, you know, because I, I don't know anyone that hasn't been affected by it in terms of family loss and stuff. So, you know, I... It could be a long time, like almost like 9-11, where it's really hard to not think of it. But I feel like my business is to relieve people from thinking about that. And I think people will come out in great numbers and, and the sense of community will be stronger than ever. That's Mark Flanagan, owner and manager of Largo at the Cornet Theater in Los Angeles. Mark, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, good luck. And, and let us know when, when you're up and running again. I will do. It'd be lovely to talk to you again. All right, that's it for Take Two this week. Our producers are Itzi Quintanilla and Julia Paskin. Julia also directed the show. Phoenix So helped us out with production, and Take Two is engineered by Hazmik Pogosian. Our senior producer and editor is Megan Larson. Now, I'm not going to be on Take Two next week. Uh, Austin Cross will be hosting Take Two all next week, but... You can still hear me next week. I'll be a guest hosting a Morning Edition from NPR West in Culver City for the week. So you could still uh, you could still hear your old pal A. Martinez on 89.3 KPCC, 2 a.m. to 9 a.m., Monday through Friday next week. Uh, so give it a listen. Uh, tell me what you think. Uh, you can also uh, find us all over Twitter, uh, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. That's at A. Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back Monday at 2. Austin Cross hosts. Marketplace is next. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.